Radio Mano Papachango. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm coming to you from Topanga Canyon, California. I had a friend come visit yesterday, my first visitor actually, and we uh, sat out on the porch and had a beer and talked about life as one does. And while we were talking, I looked up into the trees and there's uh, this up on the hill there, there was um, about 100 yards away maybe, there was a dog big dog, golden uh, German Shepherd or something. I thought, oh, there must be a house back there in those trees and they've got a dog. That's cool. And then I noticed the dog wasn't barking, which is, you know, nice. Uh, But uh, the dog sort of stared at us for a while and looked like he was free. He wasn't on a chain or anything. And uh, I thought, yeah, it's, it's weird. Like a dog staring at us, we're talking. Seems like that dog would bark or whatever. Anyway, the dog, after a few minutes, trotted off at an angle where he came closer to us. And I realized that's a fucking coyote. That's not a dog. That's like a wolf-sized coyote. Yeah, there are a lot of coyotes back here. You can hear them at night howling and yipping. And occasionally they'll catch a rabbit. And you can hear the rabbit scream. And, oh, it's horrible. It's blood-curdling. Um yeah, so anyway, I woke up this morning, walked out in the kitchen to make a coffee and realized they'd left the, the door open, the sliding door wide open all night. Surprised I didn't wake up with a goddamn coyote in bed with me. But I didn't. Um, okay, what are we talking about? This episode is with Darsha Narvaez. She's a professor at Notre Dame. She's an expert in the cognitive development of, of children and especially with an eye toward multicultural approaches to studying this all-important subject of how we become human beings. And uh, yeah, super fascinating woman. I've been reading her research and I reached out to her and asked her to be on the podcast. I've been sitting on this for a while because I recorded it when I was on the sailboat in Spain a couple months ago. And it's the last Skype interview that I've done. And I think the last one I'll probably ever do um, because... You know, the quality of the connection kind of bites and it's difficult to have the sound quality is not so bad, but it's difficult to have a flowing conversation with someone where you know how it is like I start to talk and then it turns out she was still talking, you know, and then I'm interrupting her and then she stops and then I stop and you get all that weird awkwardness. Um, anyway, so I'm sorry for that, but, uh, that's why I'm buying the van and that's why I'm flying up to Vancouver tomorrow, actually. So, uh, I'm going to do the interview with Wade Davis and I've got a couple other, um, uh, possible interviews set up for the same visit, waiting to hear back from them. But I really appreciate all of you who uh, are funding the podcast, either through the Amazon portal on my site. You know, if you go to Chris Ryan PhD and click on that Amazon thing and then uh, bookmark that landing page, a small percentage of whatever you spend at Amazon supports the podcast and allows me to fly off to Canada for a couple days to do an interview that otherwise I would have to do on Skype. And um, 
it's much better this way for all of us. Um, and then the other way that people are supporting me, which I appreciate so much, is through Patreon.com. So if you're one of those people, thank you ever so much for slapping a couple bucks a month or whatever it is um, toward the podcast. Somebody, a friend of mine sent me some money, which always makes me feel weird when a friend sends money, but he did uh, through um, PayPal, I guess it was. And, uh, and I wrote to him and was giving him a hard time. And he's like, hey, man, I want you to get that van. I mean, I don't give a shit about everything else. You got to get that van. I want this money to go toward the van. And then he said, why don't you have a GoFundMe thing set up for the van? That's what the whole site is about. You know, I'm sure people want to support the van. And I don't know. I feel weird about having my hand out, you know, but his thing was like, look, dude, you don't do advertising. So, you know, it's legit to, to ask people to support the podcast directly. So I don't know. Let me know. What do you think? Should I set up a GoFundMe thing for the van? Or do you think people who support the podcast don't really care if the money just goes toward the daily expenses of hosting and travel and all that? Or people specifically are like, no, I want to put, you know, 50 bucks toward your van. I don't know. I don't know. I'm thinking about it. If you have an opinion, let me know. Um, Okay, so what the hell was I going to do? Oh, I wanted to play you a song that just came in this morning. A podcast listener from down under, Abir Tarafdar. Tarafdar? Am I saying that right, Abir? But anyway, the first name is Abir. He and a friend or a couple friends um, got together and recorded a cover of a Beatles song. I think it's from me to you, um, and it's. Uh, but they they did it with Halloween lyrics. So I'm not normally a seasonal, festive kind of guy. I don't get the Oktoberfest beer. I don't dress up for Halloween. Uh, I do not give candy to children under any circumstances. I'm kind of a grumpy old fuck, as you might imagine. Uh, but this is a pretty funny song. So, and it's and it's actually a good cover of the Beatles tune, which is an amazing tune. So, anyway, this is a beer and one or more friends of his probably stoned out of their minds. I don't know. I'm just speculating. Singing their cover version of the Beatles from Me to You. You can. 
nice job of here and friends. Uh, yeah, so vampires. I don't know. I don't really get into scary shit. I never have. Like, life, life can be scary, but I don't seek it out. I don't get the thrill. I was hanging out with a friend uh, recently, and this new episode of The Walking Dead came on, and uh, yeah, we watched some of that, and honestly, I had to leave the room. Uh, I don't get it. I don't see why anyone would choose to watch a guy beat people, beat their, literally beat their brains out with a baseball bat. It's hard for me to think of anything uglier than that. And why you would be attracted to ugliness. I, I don't get it. I don't get it. No judgment. People get off on what they get off on. But honestly, to me, that's kind of like child porn or something. It's, it's, it's so disturbing. I don't understand the appeal of it. And uh, then afterwards, we watch this thing called Talking Dead, where everybody gets together and talks about the experience of watching the episode and the actors are there and the producers and everything. And yeah, obviously, there are, you know, many, many thousands of people who are into it. So again, I know that, um, you know, it's not about right or wrong. It is certainly lots of people get off on it, um, but I don't get it. I can get, I understand like a war movie. Yeah. And there's gore in that. And there's people getting, you know, Saving Private Ryan, that famous scene on on the beach when the, the you know, the Germans are shooting everyone down and shit's blowing up. I understand that because it feels like it's. I don't know. It feels like there's something valuable in in putting yourself into the experience of these people because it actually has happened, because it's historical, um, because it hopefully makes the audience understand how horrible war is. I, I mean, there are all sorts of, uh, I don't know, I'd be interested in, in hearing other people's opinions on this. But something that's just a horror story, I remember seeing a film once portrait of Henry, a serial killer or something like that, uh, came out years ago. This is when I was in Barcelona in the early nineties, I think. And, um, yeah, the, the opening scene, these two guys broke into this suburban house and they like tied up the husband and the daughter and the mother. And then I think they raped the daughter in front of her parents and you know, it was just this, it was horrible. And it's one of the only films I've ever walked out on. I just, I couldn't take it. And it just felt like I don't, I don't get it. It's just painful. Why would anyone want to feel that pain? I don't know. And if you don't feel the pain, then there's, you're, you're deadening something inside you. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, I, I don't get it. There are lots of things I don't get. Um, another th one thing I don't get that I've been thinking about recently is like we live in an age now maybe this has always been true but it strikes me I just downloaded a bunch of software uh, updates and I I was going through and every time you know you do the update and then it says you know, you know this screen comes up and it says 
verify that you have read and blah, 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 this, all this fucking fine print. Now they know I don't read that, but I have to say, I agree. And then another screen comes up and says, verify that you just verified that you agree that did blah, blah, blah. Yeah, 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 I agree. I haven't read it. No one reads it. You guys write it so that I won't read it. You intentionally force me to lie to use this fucking software of yours. There's something soul deadening about that too, right? There's something weird about, you know, it's like Italians who don't pay taxes. Like, yeah, nobody pays taxes, man. Like everybody knows this is bullshit. So there's this corruption. There's this cultivation of corruption at the core of these social contracts that we make. Yeah, I agree. No, I don't agree. Of course I don't agree. I haven't read the fucking thing and I'm not going to read it. You know that. I know that. But we go through the fucking motions anyway. That seems to be a very corrosive kind of way to, to live a life, right? To pretend you agree to something that you don't agree to. Maybe I've been thinking about that because I was on the phone with Brad Blanton recently, who wrote the book called uh, Radical Honesty and is uh, Carsey Blanton's father. Very interesting dude. And one of these people who I've been wanting to have on the podcast for years now and refused to do it by Skype. So we were on the phone talking about some things uh, a couple days ago. And uh, <laughs> it was kind of cool, actually, because he the reason he wanted to talk was that he's got an online course. And he asked me, you know, if I'm interested in doing some sort of affiliate marketing to help him with the online course. And because he's Brad Blanton, I just was like, hey, you know what? I don't do advertising, man. Don't do it. Not interested. You know, non-negotiable. And he was like, oh. Okay, great. So how are you doing otherwise? And so because he's honest, honesty is whole th his whole thing. I didn't feel I had to lie. I didn't feel I had to, you know, buffer it or package it in a more palatable way. Like, oh, I'd love to help Brad, but, you know, I'm doing this thing right now. And, and it, no, just like, dude, don't do it. Not interested. You know, move on. Perfect. Really nice. Um, yeah, so I've been thinking about uh, radical honesty. And trying to find the line between being honest with someone and being cruel to them. It's hard to know. Hard to know, especially when someone's a lot younger than you. You know, because it could be useful to be brutally honest with someone when they're at certain developmental stages, which I guess sort of fits into the theme of this podcast, today's episode anyway, although... Darsha's talking mostly about kids, I think. But yeah, someone who's 16, 17, or even into their 20s, you know, we develop in the context of feedback that we get. And sometimes that feedback is so distorted and so imbalanced. For example, I met a girl at a party, a dinner party the other night, 16, 17 years old, very pretty girl, so fucking full of herself. But of course she is, because she's this young woman, she's very beautiful, so what's she getting? She's getting attention all the time. She's got people who want her time, she's got guys who want to go out with her, guys who want her number, guys, adult guys, guys her age, whatever. She's got all this attention coming at her. There's all this demand for her time and her attention, right? The problem is high demand doesn't necessarily equal quality. 
We think it does. In a capitalist system, we're told that it does, right? The law of supply and demand. If you create a product that's high quality, you're going to get more demand. Yeah, but a lot of things that have high demand aren't necessarily high quality at all. Demand is not a reflection of quality, especially when you're talking about some young person who just looks good, right? But then what happens? They get all this attention. They get all this fucking empty admiration and empty compliments. Now, part of them, if they're smart, they know that's bullshit. So there's part of them that's saying, yeah, yeah, you just want to fuck me. You just want to be with me. You just want to be seen with me. You just want to look at me, whatever. But you don't know me. There's no way. You just walked up to me in a grocery store and start talking to me. You don't know me. Why are you talking to me, dude? Because you're an idiot, because you're shallow, because you want the surface of who I am, right? But at the same time, part your ego's getting filled. Your ego's getting inflated with all this attention. So there's part of you that thinks you're, you're, you're bigger than you are, you're better than you are. And there's part of you who thinks you're less than you are because you're seeking balance. So it's like Cassie used to call these guys, these American guys who get like super uh, developed in their upper body. But then their lower body is just sort of like normal to two sticks, two legs. She calls them lobsters because that's what that's how it works in America. You go to the gym and you pump up your arms, your shoulders, your chest, your back. But you're a fucking lobster. You're top heavy. And that's what happens with people who are too beautiful or too rich or too powerful or too famous or whatever. At too young an age, they get all this attention and they develop in this distorted way. Because they're not getting any reality. Nobody's telling them, you're fucking lazy. Come on, wake up. You know, where's your courage? Where's your energy? Where's your work? Where's your, you know, you're disappointing. They're not getting that kind of feedback. They're just getting, oh, you're great. You're great. You're great. Yeah. They know it's bullshit. All right. Here's a poem that has something to do with that. It's been a while since I've read a poem, but, um, Yeah, thinking about all this stuff reminded me of this poem. So here it is. It's called The Journey. It's by Mary Oliver. One day you finally knew what you had to do and began, though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice, though the whole house began to tremble and you felt the old tug at your ankles. Mend my life, each voice cried, but you didn't stop. You knew what you had to do. Though the wind pried with its stiff fingers at the very foundations. Though their melancholy was terrible, it was already late enough. And a wild night and the road full of fallen branches and stones. But little by little, as you left their voices behind, the stars began to burn through the sheets of clouds. And there was a new voice, which you slowly recognized as your own. That kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world determined to do the only thing you could do, determined to save the only life you could save. Yeah, so what's that about? The journey. It's about deciding to leave, right? It's about the resistance to you leaving, the people who say, don't leave me, mend my life, save me, stay here, the the hands reaching at your ankles, don't grow, don't move, don't change, right? Those are your 
quote, friends, unquote. Those are your, the friends who want you to stay the way they are, stay where they are, stay the way that's familiar to them. But then there are other friends that you'll meet if you do leave. They're the friends who want you to change, the friends who want you to grow, the friends who want to see what you'll become, who are much more interested in where you're going than where you are or where you've been. Those are friends who help. Those are friends that nourish. So let's read it again. The Journey by Mary Oliver. One day you finally knew what you had to do and began, though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice. Though the whole house began to tremble and you felt the old tug at your ankles. Mend my life, each voice cried, but you didn't stop. You knew what you had to do, though the wind pried with its stiff fingers at the very foundations. Though their melancholy was terrible, it was already late enough and a wild night in the road full of fallen branches and stones. These are obstacles, right? The road full of fallen branches and stones. It's a wild night. Yeah, those are always the nights when you leave. But little by little, as you left their voices behind, the stars began to burn through the sheets of clouds. And there was a new voice, which you slowly recognized as your own, that kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world determined to do the only thing you could do, determined to save the only life you could save. This song has been on my mind a lot recently. It's called Go With God, and it's by Joe Henry. Shine, shine, but almost shine. 
trees all rage and come to life. The day gives out, but it takes a wife who carries on behind his back, lets the rabble through. Time has run away with us, and it laughs at all tears and fuss. Best go with God and let me trust the ghost in here is you. And shine, shine, it almost shines like and it laughs at all the tears and fuss best to go with God and let me trust the ghost in here was you I'm not sure what the hell he's talking about there but the nostalgic vibe of that song um, sort of reminded me of thoughts I've had about God recently and religion you know, you hear all this certainty from Richard Dawkins and people like that about, uh, you know, the new atheists, they're called. They're so sure that religion is evil. Bill Maher. I don't know. People tell me Sam Harris has a more nuanced view, but it's hard to tell. I find I find Sam Harris a little difficult to listen to sometimes, but I'm going to give him a chance. Um, anyway, the uh, the point I was going to make is that sort of related to what I was saying in the last episode about how gratitude precedes happiness. I think one of the great tragedies of our age is how we've squeezed the spirit out of our lives. And it's true. Religion has been corrupt in in the West um, Islam is corrupt as fuck now in, in most of its applications, at least wasabi, isn't it? Wasabi or is that the hot sauce? <laughs> one, one is Japanese horseradish and one is the evil iteration of Islam promoted by Saudi Arabia that, uh, you know, tells people to go blow themselves up. Um, anyway, the, uh, 
yeah, Islam, uh, Christianity have certainly been used in many ways for you know, horrible things. They're, they're politics. They're not really religions in, in these cases. And Buddhism, you know, yeah, the, the, the Sri Lankan war was involved Buddhists, you know. The, so the, I think no major religion is innocent of being manipulated for political ends. But having said that, Nobody knows what the fuck is going on. This entire experience that every one of us is having is happening on a stage that is composed of wonder and mystery. There's absolutely nobody who knows what's going on, including the physicists who say, oh, yeah, it was the Big Bang. It all started with the Big Bang. Well, I just read last week, there's new research saying that, in fact, the universe isn't expanding at an accelerating rate. Oh, really? then that means we're totally full of shit about the Big Bang, right? Because that's just saying everything's exploding in a way that, well, there must have been an explosion that set it all off. And now they're saying, oh, wait a minute, maybe our calculations were wrong. Maybe that's not really what is happening now. Therefore, that's not how it started. Therefore, the whole fucking story is baseless. Well, I'm not surprised by that. Who's surprised by that? Nobody knows what the fuck is going on. So the only rational approach, and, and I use the term rational, you know, with the full understanding that that's part of the problem here. But the only approach that makes any sense is to say this is all incredibly mysterious. Nobody knows what's happening. Nobody can know what's happening. And I return to that phrase I love so much, right? Admire those who seek the truth, flee from those who claim to have found it. Nobody, nobody is certain except fucking idiots and children. Everyone else, everyone who's serious is trying to figure it out. That's it. That's the best we can do. Try to figure it out and have some respect for everybody else's theories because you don't know either, right? And as far as religion goes, I'm named after a priest. My name's Chris because my father had a priest in college. Uh, it was a professor. He went to a Catholic college. And my father grew up in a very religious Catholic tradition, Catholic high school, Catholic college. He thought he wanted to be a priest. He went to this college, um, St. Vincent's College in Latrobe, Pennsylvania. And when he was there, it was the first time he really thought, my father's the first person in his family to go to college and to think about things beyond get a job and, you know, how to pay the, the rent. And, um, he had a crisis of faith, and um, he's, the more he learned about philosophy and literature and other perspectives on life, the more he started to question what he'd been taught. And, you know, one of those, one of those wild nights, like Molly, Mary Oliver talks about in, in her poem, uh, he didn't know what to do, didn't know who to talk to, and so he went to speak with uh, one of his professors who seemed to be an open-hearted man. And he confessed to Father Chris that um, he wasn't sure he actually believed in God, at least not as 
the Catholics had been teaching and, and he didn't think he believed in the whole Catholic dogma anymore. And Father Chris said, you know what, Frank? I don't think I do either. And they both left the church. And um, so I'm named after a priest who did one of the most Christian things he could have done, which was to admit his own doubt. Christian in the sense of Christ, not in the sense of the bullshit that's been piled on top of whatever Christ said. Christ was Christ was a guy who would go to Burning Man, right? Christ was a fucking hippie. Christ was saying, you know, give away all your money. Give away all your possessions. That's where you find me. You find me in poverty. All this other shit. All these gold-plated churches and the fucking Vatican and the fancy hats and the scepters and the incense and the rituals and the priests fucking the little boys and the priests fucking each other and all this stuff is a bunch of bullshit that dumbass people have piled on top of a hippie walking around telling people you want to be happy you want to find religion the real religion you want to be in touch with god give everything away help the prostitutes help the poor help the children help the helpless that's all he said right the rest is all bullshit so when yeah richard dawkins and christopher hitchens and all these guys who i respect in some ways but when they piss on that when they piss on people who believe in whatever they call god what they're not thinking of an old man in the sky necessarily. Sure, some idiots do. But most people, when they believe in God, what they believe in is an all-permeating sense of love. You're going to piss on that, Richard Dawkins? Give me a fucking break, man. Because the truth is nobody knows what's going on. So, as I said last week, if the only choice we have is the choice of how to view things then why not focus on the mystery? Why not focus on the beauty? Because the fact is that lots of things happen around us that we don't understand. Start with placebo, hypnosis. There's so many things. Wim Hof, coming next week, by the way. So many things going on uh, that we don't understand. Wim Hof, Stanley Krippner, together next week's episode. Stay tuned for that. So yeah, time has run away with us and it laughs at all the tears and fuss. Best to go with God and let me trust the ghost in here was you. Maybe it's the Holy Ghost he's referring to. I think it probably is. So that was Joe Henry. The song is called Go With God. Last bit of housekeeping before I jump into this conversation with Darsha. Uh, our friend Eric Vidoff, who um, I played his song a couple of weeks ago in the Wim Hof episode, Little Gardens. He gets all this stuff. Little Gardens. Think about it. Th listen to that song again. I'm not going to play it because I've already played so much music in this episode. But um, yeah, if you go back to that Wim Hof episode and listen to Little Gardens or you, better yet, here's a better plan. Just go to Eric's site, ericvidoff.com. Eric, spelled E-R-I-C-V-I-T-O-F-F.com. His record drops uh, the day I'm recording this, which is Friday, and you're going to hear this Monday. It's out. So you can download Little Gardens, and uh, it's the same version I played on the podcast. 
beautiful song, very much in line with uh, the kinds of things I've just been saying about the mystery and the forgiveness and the love. And, you know, that's the whole fucking point. Tender Little Gardens. And uh, yeah, so that's it. EricFitoff.com. And this is the conversation with Darsha Narvaez. Narvaez. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, I know I went on a little long this time, but that's because the conversation with Darsha was a little short. So it all balances out in the end. I'll be in Vancouver when this comes out on Monday, back in L.A. next week. Thank you to all of you for all your support for the podcast and for just going on this journey with me. It's a long and winding road, but we'll get there eventually. Ciao. Well, thanks for taking the time to do this. I um, I was looking at some of your research for a section of uh, Civilized to Death that I'm writing now. I guess it's your most recent research about uh, hunter-gatherer um, parenting techniques. Is that a, an accurate assessment of what you're looking at these days? Yes, yes, yes. The evolved, we call it the evolved developmental niche. Evolved, okay, so explain what that is, please. Sure. So every animal has a nest for its young uh, that matches up with a maturational schedule of the offspring. And humans have one, too. Uh, we're social mammals, so ours matches up with most of what the social mammals do. And social mammals emerged about 30 million years ago, 30 to 40 million years ago. And human, the human nest is very similar, except it intensified because uh, humans had to be born more and more immature to, uh, as the brain size uh, enlarged and um, they needed to leave the womb rather early. So they're really born 9 to 18 months early compared to other animals right. in terms of uh, bones, in term, uh, bone development, in terms of mobility. And so uh, the parenting or the nest after birth is re really intense for humans. We also have a very long maturational schedule till 20 years old for physical development, but probably 30 or 35 for neurobiological development. Yeah, it's 50 in oh. my family. <laughs> the neuroscientists tell us. Yeah, and Eric Erickson had a sense of that, right? You're not an adult till you're about 35. Um, so uh, this nest is... Um, what uh, social mammals do is they get breastfeed. Um, that's what mammal means. It's a mammary gland, right, related to that. So uh, for humans, it's uh, an average in, uh, well, and let me just say as a preface, too, that the uh, anthropologists have noted all over the world small band hunter-gatherers who represent 99% of human genus history. We lived in that kind of small society uh, their immediate return, they don't have possessions, they're, they're nomadic. In those societies, they have the similar, uh, they, they talked about and they've um, summarized what those characteristics are for the early nest in all these societies that emerged independently around the world. And those are the ones that we examined in my lab then. And that includes breastfeeding, and for humans, on average, age of weaning is four years old. Right. Um, and Part of the reason for that, we now have all this neuroscience evidence, uh, neurobiological studies and research showing how important each of these things are. Uh, breast milk has all the immunoglobulins, for example, 
to build the immune system, which takes about five years to grow. Uh, so there's some, you know, reason, we can find the reasons now for these pra uh, practices. Breast milk has thousands of ingredients. They, it keeps the brain flushed in uh, the neurotransmitter precursors like tryptophan that, that grow the brain and, and so on. We hardly understand breast milk. It hasn't really been studied very much, which is kind of a surprise. So breastfeeding is one thing. Another one is responsiveness to the needs of the baby. Don't let the baby get distressed. Babies really don't cry in these nomadic foraging societies. Mm. Uh, according to the, um, the anthropologists who talk about these things, uh, whereas in the States, it's assumed that babies cry. And, yeah. and then, of course, um, part of the thing is uh, once a baby starts to cry in those first months, they don't have the capacity yet to shut, shut it down. Uh, it doesn't grow until a little bit later, apparently. Um, but it's also flooding the brain with cortisol if it's in extensive distress, and that's killing off synapses and, and changing gene expression and changing the nature of development. So responsiveness is really important. It's been ex uh, studied quite extensively in developmental psychology. So we always control for that in our studies because we know it's important. We want to know whether breastfeeding matters, whether these other things matter too. And these other things include touch, so lots of caring and holding and, and physical positive touch of that baby, which we know from animal studies influences various systems, uh, regulation of breathing and, and the vagus nerve development and uh, stress response development. Um, so we, we look at that and we find that the babies that have more touch, for example, uh, more positive touch develop better um, over time. Uh, better uh, empathy, uh, uh, conscious, conscience, uh, self-regulation, um, happiness. Yeah, that so, kind of thing. I mean, this, it's just so obvious, right? I mean, it's yeah. when we have to have the data to prove it to people who think, "Oh no, we don't know formula or breast milk is better. We got to do the tests, right?" right. So <laughs> it's that kind of thing. So there's yeah. some other characteristics too. It, it's it's funny, it's like a, a lot of what you just described. I mean, this is so comprehensive, right? It's so, you're looking at so many different um, angles and with so many far-reaching implications for the development of society. And, you know, what, I mean, this morning, for example, I was, um, I was writing about uh, Maria, what is her, Dominguez Bello, I think her name is, who does the, the studies of um, immune system development of women or of babies who are delivered uh, vaginally versus cesarean delivery uh -huh. because they don't receive the, the sort of starter microbiome from the mother's vaginal fluids when they're delivered surgically. And so right. they're picking up all these, their sort of first immunological impressions are being picked up, not from the mother's immune system, which also happens with the breast milk, um, but from the room they're delivered into, whatever bacteria happen to be floating around in the air, coming off the skin of the nurse and the doctor and the curtains and the sheets. It's yep. it's just incredible how we have sort of, you know, with all this hubris, we, we short circuit these very complex, extremely beneficial uh, processes that have developed over hundreds of thousands or millions of years. Um, you know, you remind me, you're saying how it's the, you're basically engaged in trying to prove things that are pretty obvious. It reminds me of the, the hospitalism 
situation, you know, where the, the doctors were claiming that babies needed to be kept in sterile environments and they were half of them were dying and the nurses were saying, well, of course they're dying. No one's touching them. And the doctors were saying, no, you can't touch them. You're not sterile. God, it must. I mean, do you get frustrated? I mean, it must be very exciting for you because, you know, you're going down a very fruitful path. But it must be frustrating as well, because you're like, please, people just look around you. This is obvious. Right. Yeah. So it's very frustrating. Yeah. Uh, most scholars don't want to know this uh, for whether, I mean, it's not a, a lot of people that do like the, the what I'm writing about and talking about are clinicians and many philosophers, but then there are other philosophers and then developmental psychologists who say, what? You know, uh, well, it doesn't matter. Breastfeeding? Oh, who cares about that? Uh, so it's, um, I think there's a bias because a lot of the uh, people who decided, especially women, um, to put their careers first, you know, had to make this decision and decide, you know, breastfeeding doesn't matter that much. Uh, sending my child to daycare, it doesn't matter that much. And so there's a personal investment. Yeah. Now people say, well, you don't have any kids. I don't know. And, you know, I wanted tons of kids when I was young and, and it just never worked out in my life uh, for various reasons. And now I'm realizing, well, it's probably a good thing I don't have kids because I can be more objective about what's really important and not be trying to protect my own decisions you know, right. rational. Yeah, yeah, I know what you're saying. There's, I mean, well, I, 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 a lot of your research seems to overlap with some of the, the scholars that I respect the most, um, specifically Franz Duvall talking about, uh, you know, you were talking about humans as uh, highly social um, primates, and, and uh, he's done a lot of work with that, and Sarah Hurdy with the alloparenting, and um, have you read a book called The Continuum Concept? Oh, yes. Wonderful. I have my lab members read it. My students read it. We're reading it this fall. Yeah, it's a nice introduction to um, a different worldview and the effects. It's story-driven rather than, you know, like textbook-like. Yeah. So it's, yeah. it's a nice uh, way to introduce people yeah. to these ideas. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I was wondering, you're, you know, what you're outlining uh, in terms of how far uh, a field, how far astray we've gone from sort of, um, I don't want to use the word natural because as I'm sure you're highly sensitive to that word, it can get us in so much trouble. But, um, you know, the, the way our ancestors evolved to raise children communally and to, uh, you know, pick up a child and hold a child as much as they want and breastfeed for four or five years, as you were saying, we've gone so far away from that. I wonder, do you look around, particularly in American society, and feel like the entire society is suffering from PTSD? <laughs> yeah, I do actually think that we've changed our, our human nature. And now people think it's normal for uh, adults, children to be aggressive and selfish and, you know, dysregulated. We think that's just normal stuff and you need these, you know, punishing rules and systems to keep people under control. And that's because we've misdeveloped our children and they turn into adults that create cultures that can perpetuate this bad cycle of undermining, undercare, I call it undercaring for children. Uh, so I also uh, write about uh, Darwin's moral sense. He was arguing against Spencer. Spencer was emphasizing the selfish gene, you know, and that's what humans are all about, and that's what evolution is about. And he, uh, Darwin, 
uh, uh, spent some time pointing out how the moral sense, the characteristics of the moral sense actually evolved through the tree of life and they, they reach their pinnacle in humans or their, um, I guess, manifestation of, of them together. And these things are empathy and concern for the opinion of others, social pleasure, those things you can see in other animals. And in humans, those are, are um, come together in a unique way that he was toying with the idea they were more important for human evolution than gene selection yeah yeah but, and, and that same debate's yeah. happening now between the fundamentalists like pinker and dawkins on one side and um eo uh, who is it uh eo wilson well, and yeah uh, yeah did group selection stuff yeah yeah, yeah it's interesting I, yeah I, i've got a couple of things in press uh that refer to the moral sense is diminishing in the usa Apparently, from all the data, I mean, you can't, in comparison to small band hunter-gatherers, I mean, you don't have this parallel data, but from all signs, things are going in the wrong direction. And I think a lot of it has to do with the way we raise our, our children and the, probably the epigenetic inheritances they're getting from their parents' and grandparents' experience. So it is kind of a downward spiral. My book, uh, Neurobiology and the Development of Human Morality, goes through all this stuff. The early, how it shapes, early experience shapes the brain and, and your capacities. And this kind of stuff we're missing that you can see in small band hunter-gatherers and traditional societies that provide the evolved developmental niche. Yeah. We're quite different from them. Yeah, which which brings us to this whole noble savage thing, um, you know, which I often get bludgeoned with. And uh, the point I, I try to make, and it sounds like your data would confirm this, is that uh, hunter-gatherers are not noble savages because they're somehow um, angelic creatures. They're noble to the extent that they are noble. They're noble because they live in, in an environment that encourages that sort of behavior. Yeah. And it actually requires the interdependence and the compassion and, you know, that if they don't take care of one another, nobody's going to survive. Whereas we've developed this strange artificial reality in which the opposite virtues are adaptive. And so we find ourselves with sort of one foot in two canoes that are going in different directions at the moment. Yeah. You know, obviously we we still highly value friendship. We suffer when we don't have community. It's, I think that's the number one predictor of mortality is uh, absence of a sense of community and friendship in one's life. And on the other hand, we, you know, we celebrate these ruthlessly competitive narcissistic uh, figures who are, you know, running for president at the moment. And, yeah. uh, you know, running industry and all that. It's it, where do you see this going? Is do you see this sort of conflict between our evolved nature and what's being demanded by society in the same terms I do? And if so, how do you see it resolving? Well, yeah, I agree with you. Um, <clears throat> in our ancestral environment, survival and virtue went hand in hand. Uh, you had to be, well, self-regulated, which we now don't have to be. Uh, you had to be cooperative, which now we don't have to be. We keep people alive who are not cooperative, who are dysregulated, who are mentally unstable. Uh, but in those in those conditions, you had to, uh, you know, have the trust of your um, group and, and work well within your environment and, and understand how to live well with the earth. And now we've divorced ourselves from the evolutionary cycle, 
um, from natural selection, we've decided that we don't have to follow uh, natural law, essentially, and we can kill off all these other species as well and shortchange their evolution, eliminate them completely, uh, and we're dominant. And I think those ideas of being superior and separate from nature are coming from this early experience because when you separate that baby from the mother, which we do routinely in hospitals still, even though baby-friendly hospitals are coming together now, more in the states um, when you separate them when you leave them to cry the baby learns that they they can't trust their own signals their own body mm -hmm. signals they learn to divorce themselves from the environment uh, their emotion systems aren't well developed uh, as a result and they they have to develop this detached kind of self to figure out and to survive or else they die um, or go crazy uh, and so we have all these weird people on the planet that don't even know how to live on the planet anymore which is really strange <laughs> <laughs> yeah it is strange uh, one of the the conceits of this book I'm working on is that we are going to live in an artificial environment that's simply unavoidable there's no going back to the Pleistocene at this point um, but do we want to be in the Calcutta Zoo or do we want to be in the San Diego Zoo you know, and I think the sort of research you're doing is so crucial in designing designing an environment that's based upon the natural environment of the creature that's enclosed within, right? Which is us in this case. Um, yeah, it's really important. Are, are, now, you're not an anthropologist, right? You're trained as a psychologist. Right. But you also, you've had, uh, like me, you're not a straight-up academic. You've had a varied life before you even got into this, it sounds like. That's I read. Right. This were, is my second career. Yeah, you're a Spanish teacher, right? I was, uh-huh. And an entrepreneur. I have biology also. I was a music teacher. I was a music major in college. Uh -huh. And, uh, yeah, I worked in the Latino community for a while and uh, overseas, too, and I grew up uh, living in other Spanish-speaking countries, uh, going back and forth. No, where, so, where did you grow up? Uh, well, my dad was from Puerto Rico, and so the first four, of, first four of five years of my life, I spent in Puerto Rico, and then every third year we went away for a year. So in Guadalajara, Mexico, one year, Bogota, Colombia, um, Pamplona, Spain, mm. and Mexico City. I taught a year in the Philippines, in Baguio City as a music teacher. Um, so I've done a lot of different things. And even within my academic career, I've shifted just due to circumstances beyond my control. So I was working in the schools, moral education, when I was at the University of Minnesota, came to Notre Dame, No Child Left Behind came in, and the schools didn't want to work on moral character development. So I ended up just reading widely and getting into the parenting stuff in the early, early nest. Um, so it's, you know, follow the muse and you never know where you're going to end up. <laughs> yeah, and I got a feeling you, you're you still going to end up somewhere you haven't anticipated yet. You're, you're still going, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> the place where I'm going now is uh, back to indigenous wisdom. So we have a conference in a, less than a month now, uh, September 11 to 15, called Sustainable Wisdom, Integrating Indigenous Know-How for Global Flourishing. Because they know how to live on the earth traditionally, right? They they pay attention to a local landscape. They know the relationships, how to sustain biodiversity in that landscape. Uh, and that's the thing we have to get back to. I'm trying to do that in our own yard now. So, Are you, uh, 
Well, maybe you're not actually able to speak about this. I'm not sure, but don't let me put you in any hot water. But I'm wondering if you're involved at all with um, any of the entheogens and the sort of alternative approaches to psychological development uh, through ayahuasca or peyote or any of those sort of traditional approaches. No, I'm not involved in those yeah, that it's sort of a parallel movement that's going on, I think, with the indigenous wisdom. A lot of people are going to the, the Amazon or to Mexico. And I have some friends who are psychotherapists who who were involved in that sort of stuff. But right. teaching in an American See, university, you probably want to avoid that. That's right. Well, one of the things, uh, what I talk about in my book, uh, that we're missing. So what happens in early life when, when things go well, your right hemisphere is scheduled to develop um, uh, primarily in those first years of life. And the right hemisphere governs a lot of your self-regulatory capacities, like the vagus nerve, the 10th cranial nerve, which relates to all systems in the body. Uh, and uh, the right hemisphere also is the one that... Um, is related more, um, it's right lateralized for empathy, for uh, self-transcendence. And so if you undermine that development by leaving children to cry and be alone and not very socially embedded, uh, and therapists talk about this particularly is for guys who I think need this evolved developmental niche or nest even more than girls, uh, but they come in as uh, as a couple with an empty nest, and the man, the the woman wants to go explore the world and you know run around and have new adventures, and the man just wants to stay home in his man cave. Uh, and the, the therapists talk about this as a right hemisphere on deficit, that the right hemisphere was never developed properly in the man, mm. and so they don't feel comfortable with new things. Um, they're inflexible. They're more scripted. They're um, less able to be present emotionally, etc. And so that's what really develops in those early years. And part of that is that, like I said, the self-transcendence, the ability to actually feel a sense of connection to the whole, to all the entities, to uh, feel the energy and all the systems and entities around you, the trees, the river, the, the animals, as well as the other humans. Uh, and that's the thing that those drugs then I think can help people get to. Uh, there's one way to get to that sense. Uh, so I think there's part of the attraction is that we want to be self-transcendent. We want to, as a baby, just fall into our mother's arms or our father's arms or our caregiver's arms and just relax and be carried around and just be dead to the world that you know you're safe. And we don't give that to babies much anymore. And so you never have that letting go completely into the arms. Like uh, the continuum concept talks about this, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think it's it's something that's been channeled so exclusively into sexuality in our, in our yeah. society. You know, the only merging with another human being that's acceptable is a sexual partner. And even that, you know, from, if you're a real man, you don't really do that either, I think. Yeah. So sad. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it is. I mean, I, I get the sense that you and I share this um, this sort of urgency to to um, try to spread some of this information because it's so healing. And yet, speaking for myself at least, I feel I feel kind of hopeless sometimes. You know, I feel like we're trying to 
um, we're trying to talk about how to be a healthy fish in a poisoned river. It, it it's so the whole society is so badly yeah. oriented. Um, yeah. yeah, it do, is. Do you know? But, what, what, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, do you know James Prescott's work? Uh, what helps me is to. Oh yeah, yeah. He's one of the ones I first discovered who got me onto this realization that that uh, attachment um, in in graduate school they're always talking about attachment, Bowlby's attachment as a internal working model, uh, as if it's a psychological thing. And then I realized, no, it's neurobiological. You're engraving the brain of your child based on how well that you you, you uh, provide that nest, right? So yeah, James Prescott's great. Yeah, he was. So every couple of years I have a conference here, and, and the first one was on evolution, early experience, and human development. We had an edited volume come out of that. So he was one of the guest um, speakers, along with Yak Panksept and Alan Shore, who were my inspiration for all this. So that volume came out of Oxford University Press in 2013. That's great. That's great. Yeah, his his work was very pivotal for me as well, that showing that... Uh, that famous study he did where he showed that uh, mother-child contact and um, allowance for the expression of teenage sexuality predicted, I think in 100% of of the societies where the data existed, um, predicted uh, the amount of internal and external violence in the society. So the yeah. more mother-child contact and the more relaxed the teen sexual expression was, the less likely there was to be violence within the society or between that society and, and any other. Yeah, it's it's pretty incredible stuff. Are you looking at uh, teenage sexuality at all in this developmental model? Uh, no, we're, we're just studying uh, the young children right now and the effects of the nest, the early nest, and then we ask adults about their own experience of it. And we look at then uh, um, outcomes like well-being and morality, types of morality. Right. And <clears throat> so no, no adolescence at the moment. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's again, that's in American society. That's kind of dicey, dicey stuff to get involved in. Luckily, I don't have a job, so I can say whatever I want, and <laughs> I can't get fired. I'm, I'm already fired. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Have you met uh, Franz Duvall or Sarah Hurdy or any yeah. of those folks? Yes, yes. Uh-huh. I, I cite their work in mine. Yeah. Um, yeah, Franz came to one of our symposia a couple years ago. Mm-hmm. He's a wonderful guy. Um, he is. Yeah, I, I've told this story before, but uh, it's worth telling again. The way I met him was when I was finishing uh, Sex at Dawn, um, I felt, I felt a little, uh, hesitation because I was using a lot of his research, obviously in, in bonobos and, uh, the sort of primitive primate origins of morality and social, social, uh, learning and all that. Um, but I was arriving at conclusions that differed from his and I thought, well, this is kind of unfair that I'm using his research and yet I'm arguing with him. And uh, so I sent him an email and said, hey, you know, I'm this is what I'm doing and this book's ready to go to the publisher. But if you'd like to uh, look at the material and tell me if I, you think I'm being unfair or something, you know, um, yeah, I'd be happy to send it to you. So he said, OK, send it to me. And I did. And 
he uh, responded by saying, well, I don't know, have you looked at this study and that study and whatever? And we went back and forth a little bit. And then in the end, he said, well, you know, I don't know, you might be right. This is uh, certainly very interesting material, and I wish you lots of luck with the book. And just such a gentleman. And uh, and then I said, well, could I quote you publicly saying that? And he said, of course, use it as a blurb if you'd like. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so it started off as a, you know, a respectful disagreement ended up uh, in, in friendship, actually. Nice. Uh, yeah. I wish I wish everyone was, you know, looked at disagreement through those sorts of eyes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, now where do you come down? First of all. I should apologize to listeners because this is partly a podcast, but it's partly just an opportunity for me to pick your brains a little bit since I'm writing about your research at the moment. Um, I wanted to ask, do you have any data on how many mothers died in childbirth in hunter-gatherer societies? No, I'm very curious about that, too. Uh, People say, oh, we don't want to go back to that because the moms will die. Right. Right. So we have to have these severe hospital practices and, you know, where we traumatize the mother and baby just to keep them alive. Uh, so I don't know. I don't have data on that. But, you know, how often do we find in, in uh, wild animals that there's a mother died from from birth? It's really rare, it seems to me. But yeah, it is rare. But as you mentioned earlier, we're kind of an unusual species in that our our you know, cranium has been growing steadily. Uh, I guess it's yeah. stopped growing in the last 40, 50,000 years. Um, but yeah, it's... Th- have so, you- yeah, Sarah Hurdy points out that uh, women, um, because of that, uh, started to have assisted childbirth, right? Another woman nearby. Right. And that woman would have been an experienced woman who would know presumably how to switch the baby around so it's not a breech birth, for example, or uh, what to do with various emergencies. So um, we've lost a lot of those women. They were burned at the stake, right, in the 1300s, Inquisition, other time periods where a lot of the wisdom that uh, was carried from prior generations was lost to the Europeans anyway. Yeah, yeah, which is... Yeah, it's terrible. Um, while while we're talking about uncomfortable subjects, um, have you looked at rates of infanticide in hunter gatherers? Uh, no, but I know they they have them uh, because they were sensitive to um, whether they could care for that infant, right? Whether the yeah the uh, community could care for this. So there was this uh, almost a a moral. Um, decision making going on there um in terms of the health of the community and the the ability to care for that child so no i haven't looked at the rates of either uh do you know them uh well yeah i mean i i know the the rates of child mortality you know in different hunter-gatherer groups we don't know exactly to what extent that's infanticide versus you know just natural death or I know in some societies, twins, um, the mother will take one of the twins out and abandon it uh, because she can't care for two babies at the same time. Um, But, yeah, it's funny. You know, it's sort of similar to the arguments made for natural childbirth versus to justify the interventions in hospitals. 
people talk so much about child mortality and hunter gatherers, but then they the comparisons they make to the modern world don't include abortion. Um, yeah, you know, the other thing that happens, which I complain about uh, with evolutionary psychologists, uh, so-called, um, uh, they the, the baseline for what they're referring to keeps shifting. Yeah. So when people talk about, oh, the mortality rates, they're usually thinking about 1850 or something. Or, you know, when doctors were sticking their hands into the womb with unwashed from having dealt with a corpse, for example, high childbirth, uh, childbed death rates. Um, so you really have to be careful about what baseline you're using. Uh, and um, a lot of psychologists are not paying attention to that, and then they just make these draw these conclusions. You know, turkeys rape, so you know that's why humans rape because it's just part of evolution. You know what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's a big one, and also uh, trying to define what rape is across species. Like, how do we know how they're experiencing things? You know, it's yeah, it, it's a mess. Well, listen, um, I would love to continue this conversation when we're actually in the same room sometime. I hate uh -huh. I hate doing these Skype interviews because with the delay, it's so awkward and weird. Um, uh -huh. But I'm about to buy a van and outfit it for a comfortable living, and then I'm going to be driving all over America having conversations with interesting people. Oh, that sounds fun. Yeah, so um, if you're willing to to uh, meet up sometime i'll come through south bend i've never been there oh oh we'll come for a football game yeah well you know christopher patrick ryan is my full name and my family couldn't be more irish so <laughs> we've been notre dame fans forever oh wow yeah let yeah. me know a ticket for you oh really oh my god i'll have to bring my dad okay <laughs> <laughs> Load him in the van and drive to South Bend. There you go. <laughs> Can I say a couple more things? Yeah, please. Say as much as you want. I'll just be quiet. I, f I feel bad that I interrupt you and then we're, you know, we have that awkward delay thing. So yeah, yeah. say what you'd like, please. Sure. Take it away. So so uh, what I is, uh, write about now is we've got all these adults that have, and even children in schools that are not well-developed. They're dysregulated. And, and uh, what are we going to do about that? And so I, I talk about how you have to learn to calm those primitive survival systems down because the stre you're stress-reactive now. We've created all these stress-reactive people, and it, it, what it does is it happens so quickly, it shuts down your thinking. You go to you know scripted or ideological um, uh, patterns of reacting to the world, and so you're not really open and present to the nuances and the newness and you know that's a very right hemisphere capacity thing so uh you have to learn to calm yourself down and that you know using various techniques like deep breathing and meditation and you know everyone's different so it's going to be a different set of things and then that's not enough of course to get back to our restore your capacities as a human being you have to learn then to also be socially uh, get pleasure from being with others in the moment without you know uh, trying to control and, and um, uh, other people. And so that comes about through lots of play. So face-to-face -face play. Um, 
it's great to have to play with children. That's ideal, and and you you don't think about yourself. You you're caught in the moment with that other person developing and um, creating an interpersonal space in that moment. Uh, that grows your right hemisphere, apparently. So uh, then that isn't enough either because we have to deal with things that are more than face-to-face relationships. You have to then expand your imagination so that third capacity or set of uh, brain capacities in our neocortex, prefrontal cortex, that has to also then be expanded to include a sense of relation to uh, those other people the outside your in-group. The, the, and then I, I argue the indigenous way is to uh, include the animals, plants, rivers, mountains, all the entities, the natural entities around you. Uh, and then we can get back to who we are as human beings, because I think we're missing the boat here. We've become some other species almost. And if we don't change, if we don't restore ourselves, we're, we're going off the cliff. Our species isn't going to last. You can't. We're sort of right now a weed species. The, the culture that, that dominates is a weed culture. And it's uh, destroying the planet, and it's all over the place now. It's just uh, spiraled out of control. Um, and so in order to get back to some sense of being an Earth creature, these are the things, these are steps to take and to develop an ecological attachment. It's one, another thing that's missing in us, so to feel really connected to the Earth, the planet, the, the particular landscape in which we find ourselves, and be concerned about its welfare. So those are the, that's the direction that I am in now, um, and our conference in September is going to be, you know, how do we integrate all this? So we don't want to go back to living in, in uh, outside with bugs crawling all over us, right? Nobody wants to do that. So uh, how do we get to a place where we can integrate our modern kind of lifestyle with this very ecological, responsible attachment? Do you, ever, do you ever think that maybe we're um, we're a, a stepping stone that we're that this this terrible progression that we're seeing away from an ecological consciousness and away from compassionate community-based living and egalitarianism and um, you know decent male female respectful relationships all have you ever thought that this is all sort of a progression into another life form and that we're sort of um, uh, an embryonic stage in that other life form that's that's more technological-based than cellular? Yeah, I know people have that idea. For me, it's like, well, that's wishful thinking. It's sort of like what we've been, we've been entranced by technology for some hundreds of years now. And we think, oh, yes, technology is going to bring us a wonder world. But as Thomas Berry has pointed out, it's developed a waste world. If you look all over the place, it's a waste world that technology has left us. So I think that's that's a wishful thinking. That's what you know our detached minds want to think. Because uh, I don't know if you know um, Ian McGillicris' book, The Master and His Emissary. No. No. Oh, that's well worth reading. But he goes through... The research on right versus left hemisphere uh, and what they're like. So all these various studies they've done with where they numb one side of the brain or the other and the capacities that are shown. The left hemisphere, 
which is now dominant in the Western culture. And he talks about the first half of the book is going through the research. The second half is how the left hemisphere has dominated Western civilization and led to the downfall of the planet. Um, in part because it's left, like I said, the right hemisphere is underdeveloped in early life now because of the way we treat babies and children. We keep them alive, but they're not really human anymore. Uh, and so this left hemisphere becomes dominant. And the left hemisphere likes dead things. It likes everything static and categorized and utility-focused. And, uh, you know, it doesn't think about life, aliveness or connection or relationship. It's very, um, it's the kind of scientific mindset that we, we see predominant um, in the world. And uh, so I've lost my train of thought where I was going, but um, <clears throat> that's the kind of thing that um, has led us to this place. I forgot where I was going to go. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, you're you're going in five different directions at the same time, <laughs> yeah. all of them interesting. Um, I read a book recently called Shaman. Um, I can't remember the author's name, but he's a science fiction writer. And it takes place in a prehistoric hunter-gatherer band. And, you know, I, I came to it thinking, oh, Kim Stanley Robinson, I think, is the author's name. And What's I, the last name again? Robinson. He's a okay. well-known science fiction writer. Um, I came to it thinking, you know, I'm going to read this and be disappointed in, uh, at how inaccurate the depictions of hunter-gatherer life are and all that. Um, but it was actually really well done, very well done. And what you're saying reminded me of it because, you know, sometimes I think I'd love to write a, a fictional book based in prehistory because I've done all this research. It would be fun to use it for something, you know, less like homework than the books I am writing. And uh, but the the imaginative leap is so great because we're not talking about people like us who just lived in a different environment. They're very different people because of these developmental differences that you're talking about. Their brains are different from ours. Their sense of relationship is different. Their sense of of what they see when they look in the sky is completely different from what we see. That's right. And, and you said there, yeah. you know, we keep these babies alive, but they're not really human. <laughs> I mean, I mean that sounds like an overstatement, but it isn't. And the thing is, those babies are us. Mm-hmm. That's right. We're like a bunch of poodles talking about what it was like to be a wolf. You know, it's it's mm-hmm. impossible for us to even really imagine. That's right. I agree. Yep. I know it's really shocking. Um, and so, how do you, the the challenge I have is how do you tell people that they're not species typical, and they need to change? <laughs> they don't want to hear it, and they don't believe it. Right. right? So. <laughs> yeah, everyone thinks they're normal, right? Nobody has an accent. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's strange. Well, I think, you know, that's the advantage of growing up the way you and I both did moving around a lot. You sort of learn at a very young age that there is no zero in this number system. You know, it, there's no there's no home base. Everything is is distorting and distorted and every tribe has its own bias. And yeah. You ever read Joseph Campbell, the mythologist? Yes. Yeah. He, yes. Yes. He has that great concept of detribalization, which I think is such a such a crucial understanding that the first step toward actually seeing the world is getting outside of your own tribal biases and and belief system. Yeah. Well, your work is is 
crucial for this. I really thank you for this, and uh, I apologize for the awkwardness of the Skype interview. I try to try to always meet up with people that I want to talk with, uh, even if it requires flying around. But um, this was I wanted to get this in before I turn in the manuscript, so I could take advantage of it. So please, let's meet up in South Bend sometime. Sounds good, and let me know if you have any questions. I'm happy to answer them uh, by email or whatever. Okay, great. Now, uh, I'll put a link to your site on the the page here. It's it's just your name, right? Uh, Darshe Narvaez, but it's spelled D-A-R-C-I-A-N-A-R-V-A-E-Z.com. Is that right? Sure. And they can also, maybe I could send you my university link. It's at sure. the bottom of my email. Oh, okay. There's a lot of papers to download there. Oh, good. Good. And your books, uh, are they all academic books? Are any of them written for the, the lay reader? Uh, the Neurobiology and the Development of Human Morality is sort of an in-between book. It's for the Norton series on interpersonal neurobiology. So it's uh, that's a therapist um, uh, series. So it's written in the medium level. They didn't want it to be too popular sounding, but uh, regular people can read it. Yeah. <laughs> and it's intended. So there's a lot of illustrations that are intended to help it help people get it. Great. Well, all, all my listeners are geniuses, so they won't have any trouble with it. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Good. All right. Thanks a lot, Darshe. Oh, thank you. Take care. Bye. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Thank you to everybody who supports the podcast through Patreon.com. You can decide how much you want to give the podcast, a buck a month, five bucks a month, ten bucks a month, or you can get completely crazy and give 20 bucks a month or more. Or you can give nothing. If you don't have any cash, don't worry about it. Just enjoy the podcast and tell your friends. The other way you can support the podcast is if you buy shit through Amazon.com or you know someone who does, please direct them through the link on my page chrisryanphd.com you click on that baby once bookmark the landing page on amazon and then eight to ten percent of whatever you spend will come to support the podcast at no extra cost to you or your loved ones thank you to basin and range for that opening music at the beginning of the podcast very funky little tune there uh called the bright side of the sun i believe you can find out more about them at basinandrangeband.com if you want to talk about the podcast with other listeners a good place to do that is on reddit just search tangentially speaking all one word there's a community of a couple hundred people in there chatting about the episodes i drop in occasionally and say hello answer questions whatever uh thanks to shore design t-shirts our garage is full of them my mom has them all organized as only she can julie thank you to julie my mom she'll send those t-shirts out to you if you order them everything we've got in stock is from shore design t-shirts in Thailand, and you can check out their webpage as well for other designs. Thank you to Carsey Blanton. You can find out more about Carsey Blanton at CarseyBlanton.com. C A R S I E B L A N T O N.com. She wrote and performed the song you're about to hear, which is called Smoke Alarm, and it's a reminder to carpe fucking diem while you still can because, ladies and gentlemen, you're going to die one day. Here's to you, Bennett. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. 
Say what you wanna say. You're gonna die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're gonna say. When everyone you've ever known is headed for a headstone, I don't wanna give the end away, but we're gonna die one day. Your body is an animal, doesn't ask for much. A little music and a soft touch. Why don't you let it out to play? Your heart is in a birdcage, singing in your chest. You wanna shut it up but give it a rest. You're gonna die one day. Why do we waste our time thinking about a reputation, running from a It's a big deal if you wanna be free. Say what you wanna feel. Spend the night with me. I'm gonna take you up in my arms, and if we must go down, we'll go singing to the smoke alarms. We'll dance into the ground.